Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Aaron Hurst. Aaron is a globally recognized systems entrepreneur who has used the science of purpose to change the way we work and serve. He is the CEO and founder of Imperative, a venture-backed startup that is reconnecting us as human beings in the workplace through peer coaching. Aaron is also the founder and an active advisor to the Taproot Foundation, where he was the catalyst and lead architect of the $15 billion pro bono service market. Widely known for his thought leadership, he is the author of The Purpose Economy, and a regular advisor and thought partner for many global brands. He has written for or been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg TV, Fast Company, and he was named a LinkedIn influencer. Welcome, Aaron. Great to be with you. It's always awkward to hear that read, but um, thank you for that anyway. <laughs> I get it. We all have that like awkwardness. In fact, I don't even listen to the podcast because I'm like, really? Is that what I sound like? <laughs> You know, it's always weird to listen to yourself or, or hear somebody read your bio, but um, I'm impressed. I can tell you that. So I have to tell you something really quickly because it's yeah. what I was doing right before um, you and I started the conversation. So I was bored a little bit over the holidays. and was just scrolling through LinkedIn and I decided to do a search for my last name. Just, you know, one of those stupid things you do to sort of seeing who out there, maybe there's relatives I don't know about. And, oh. um, I came across the uh, former CEO of Panera Bread shares my last name, Blaine Hurst. So I had sent him a note. Um, so I just got off a call with this guy from the Midwest who shares, uh, shares the same uh, last name, but actually my family's Jewish. He's Pentecostal. Hostel, like couldn't be more different in terms of background. <laughs> um, but it was amazing just how like we had so much in common. Was it the just, Panera Bread guy? Yeah. Uh, no, it's not the founder. He was the CEO for a while. Oh, um, maybe he's so my next fun, podcast guest. I love I know, Panera maybe. Bread. Panera Bread's great. So I just, I loved it. It was just such a, I'm just coming off of that, that high of just yeah. feeling that connectedness in the, in the universe. And it's also just a fun, I encourage everyone to try that if you haven't before, just like reach out to a few people. Yeah. There's not a lot this, of swirlins, I will say, but um, yeah. this is actually perfect because it's um, very much aligned with my research on you, which is like your theme of connect, connectedness. Um, <laughs> so that's actually no surprise. Not many people would probably do that, but um, okay. So rapid fire, are you ready? Please. Okay. Uh, do you prefer the East or West Coast? East. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Right on the line, more introvert. Oh, really? I thought you were going to say extrovert. Um, what have you read, listened to, or watched this past year that you would recommend? We're rereading Switch by the Heath Brothers as like a book club inside the uh, imperative and just loving it. I mean, I've read it now like four times. Just, What's it about? The, the, I've not even heard switch? of it. How embarrassing. Heath, do you know the Heath brothers, Chip and Dan Heath from Stanford? No, um, I'm like, I'm like they, horrible. I'm not a big reader. They're like, um, they're awesome. And it's very accessible. It's very fun. Um, so the book switch is really around how to, the sort of psychology of helping people make change. Oh, um, I should definitely read that as a no, Like I've never had anybody like read that and not be like, that's one of my favorite books. Oh, it's got so it. It's so good. Okay. So um, yeah, 
I'm loving that. Nice. Thank you for the recommendation. I just wrote it down. Um, if you had a band, what would it be called? Silence. <laughs> the, I'm not musical. The, iron, so. the irony, like shut the F up. We don't want to hear you. That's awesome. That's so, and you're so quick witted. I'm like, okay, I wouldn't have thought of that. That's perfect. Um, if you could have lunch with anyone dead or alive, who would you choose? May as well start where we are. Why don't you and I go to lunch sometime? Oh, that's so sweet. I'm down. Like a virtual lunch? Or are you are you okay with an outside mass Either way. meal? Okay. I'm, Come yeah. over. Let's make it happen. All right. I'm all over it. Okay. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Interesting. Um, what three words would describe you as a leader? Uh, curious, uh, bold, and purpose-driven. Nice. Well, no surprise. Those are the positive ones anyway. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, we should call impatient your employees. And, yeah, exactly. I think impatience would probably come in there. And, Most entrepreneurs um, are. I mean, we're the crazy yeah. ones who choose this line of work. And so we want fast results. And it's like, get on board or beat it, right? No. And they've shown that. Like, there was a friend of mine at NYU who did a whole research study on mental health and entrepreneurs and their kids. And it's definitely much higher among our ilk. Yeah. I'm not surprised by that. So tell me... Um, Tell me about you as like a kid. I would love, I think we would have been buddies. <laughs> um, I was a, I, maybe. Um, I was a pretty weird kid. I, we moved around a ton. So to me, a lot of it was just adaptation. So I was born in Aspen, Colorado. Um, we were living in a teepee, basically, like right next to Hunter S. Thompson, um, right outside of Aspen. Literally um, a teepee? Yep. I, TP and then like my dad built a cabin. They were sort of dropout hippie types. So that was my first two years. Then we moved to Bisbee, Arizona and um, lived there. My dad was had an LSD factory. He was running right across the border in Mexico and um, did that for a little while. And then that didn't work out. So he just started doing mining and all kinds of randomness. And then uh, we moved to Boulder and then I moved to Halifax and then to Ann Arbor. So it was just a lot of moving, wow. a lot of moving around. So it sounds like it's like hot weather, cold weather, hot weather. <laughs> Constant wardrobe changes. Um, <laughs> so I think a lot of my personality as a kid was just like ad adapting and learning how to try to like um, quickly sort of fit in or not fit in in sort of these different yeah. environments. And you had to tap um, in, I guess, to your extroversion. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of like my, yeah, <laughs> a lot of my interest in connecting is just real. Like I had to so many times reconnect and connect with people. Because a lot of people go to school as someone in kindergarten all the way through high school. Um, I didn't have any of that whatsoever. Yeah. So it was like constantly needing to connect with people who did have deep roots and build a community for myself. So yeah. Do you feel rooted uh, now? You've been in Seattle for a while. No, I do not. <laughs> you do um, not. No, Seattle, we moved to Seattle for my wife's job. Um, she got recruited to run sustainability at Amazon and it was, you know, top job in her field and her dream job. So we, we made the move from Brooklyn. Um, and it's, uh, it's stunningly beautiful here. Culturally, it's been hard. Yeah. Um, the people are definitely different country. than Brooklyn. As you know, we moved here from New York and I grew up here, but I feel like I'm more um, connected in New York with people. Yep. It's yep. just a totally different energy. So I get that completely. Um, what did you want to be? Like you said, you were um, always looking for connection and kind of rootedness. But what did you think that you wanted to aspire the to? The thing be? I aspired to like when I was a kid was I wanted to be a James Bond villain. <laughs> Um, I just thought they were the coolest. Um, and I think they're like, in some ways, like a lot of them are like, not all of them, but a lot of them are social entrepreneurs. Like they were, they took it too far, but they often had like a change they wanted to make in the world. Um, they just took it way too far. Yeah. Um, I just always, though, like the like bold, big thinking of like disrupting the whole world um, and that kind of frame and found so many of the stories of like other people just, the ambition was not 
is exciting. Um, yeah. They felt like the most ambitious people that I ever came across were Bond villains. Yeah, and so money wasn't a big driver. Money was not. Money has always just been like tertiary at best. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have money growing up at all, but um, my we could have had both... like a big, huge, fabulous teepee. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, chandeliers. Yeah. It was stunning. Yeah. Um, no, I think it was. There was not. There's not a focus. Now, my extended family has money, but my immediate family doesn't. And um, my parents both worked. And they happen to get paid. Sort of how they always showed up, mm-hmm. and that's always been my like. I'm always shocked when I get paid. Did they have? Did like, they have like passion for what they were doing, or just like work to live? Um, no, they were absolutely passionate about whatever they were doing. So you know, my mother was a belly dancer and astrologist, and loved doing oh that, and God. ran a bookstore. Your story is so fascinating. They loved those, and then my dad, um, you know was like a failed entrepreneur over and over again. Um, my favorite job of my dad's, which you'll appreciate, was he uh, his one of his first jobs out of college. He went to University of Colorado Boulder and was a chemistry major. Um, so the first job he got, I believe, was in Brooklyn, um, was as a uh, industrial spy at Manischewitz. Um, and he was hired to try to prevent the, uh, the Yiddish workers from uh, unionizing. Oh, my God. Um, this is like, is that a really a job? It, I don't think it is anymore, but... Um, Manischewitz like, is nasty. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what he, so it was interesting because he didn't speak, at, I mean, more than a few words of Yiddish and they wanted yeah. to basically go undercover inside the like all Yiddish speaking employee base oh and like God. figure out what they're up to. And he's like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Um, so anyway, so he had a very uh, a colorful career and he ended up, his last job, which he's just finishing now is a uh, social entrepreneur working in the Boulder uh, school district and created a oh, whole program cool. to create a whole secondary economy to encourage kids to um, not drive to drive to school. So biking, walking, carpooling, um, and got local businesses to donate because I'm trip tracker dollars. So like if you do that a certain number of times, like it'll give you enough money to go get ice cream or at the arcade. Oh, that's super cool. Book. That's super smart. It just took over like, it took off like crazy. Yeah. Um, Is he going to scale it like you know, nationally, or is it just a They've done it a little bit. It's not something, it's in the school district, so he's mm-hmm. definitely gone to a lot of conferences and looked at that, but um, he, he's always been sort of very locally rooted there. Yeah, so. interesting. And so what were your grandparents like? Like, how did your parents become hippies? Usually I feel like that's generational, but it doesn't sound yeah, like it. Reaction. Uh, no, it was definitely reaction. I mean, my grandfather was um, a guy who wore a suit to the beach. Like, that was sort of very, like formal um he was you know originally from salt lake one of like three jews i think in salt lake at the time um and he went and served uh, as an officer in world war ii and then was part of the marshall plan and reconstruction of germany and then wow. you know helped build the uh peace corps sort of the one who initiated that idea with kennedy and then uh, ran the aspen institute for about 25 years oh my so god he was very much he was i mean he was very much about connecting people as well but was very very formal like he you know, like I said, suits at the beach is the best way. I love the photos of like him sitting there. He might take his shoes off. He might not. But like the tie was on like full on suit at the right, beach. It's like generational too. That's so funny. Was oh, he absolutely. a big um, kind of influence in your life? He was. I mean, he died of Parkinson's and sort of was like a downward trajectory once I was sort of at an age from a career standpoint. But yeah. there are certain things about him and what he stood for that were almost like folklore in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, certain ideas he had, like he had a big push on like, don't do something unless you can do it world class and be like the best at whatever it is. Like it's not worth doing if you can't do that. Yeah. Um, a big belief that um, people just don't understand each other, but if you actually get them to find shared purpose that um, they'll, they'll come together. And that's been yeah. a major influence. I wish right now that that could be like, he could just like 
scream that from the mountaintops. Like we're so divided right now. We need more men like him, more people like him. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I'm sad obviously he's not here, but I don't think he, like I, he would have just been completely destroyed by the current state of our country. Yeah, um, I'm sure. I don't sure. think you would even know how to process it. Yeah. Um, and so you grew up and you said you lived all over the place. Was, yep. Ann, was Ann Arbor High School? Ann Arbor was high school. So my dad got his PhD. Um, so University of Michigan is like third generation. My dad got his PhD there while I was in high school. So mm. lived there and then ended up staying and going to Michigan. Yeah, um, I was going to ask because I saw that you went to Michigan. I'm like, always kind of fascinated about how people choose colleges. And some people are like, I don't know, my parents told me to go. Or other people are like, you know, I applied here, didn't get in and ended up at this school. Like, was that always kind of your vision? No. Um, no, I didn't really. I mean, it was interesting because my my parents were dropouts and didn't really value education. And then my, the next generation, the grandparents, like very high bars. So I think to me, it was a little confusing about what is, what is success there. Um, my choice of school was largely driven by a big cliche, which was my girlfriend in high school was a year younger than I was. You want to be so, close. How sweet. Yeah. Sweet. Which that's of not, course that's not your up. wife. We broke right? up like, no, we broke up probably within a month of yeah, the exactly. start of college. Like that exactly. didn't go anywhere. Young love. Um, right. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but that was, you know, a big driver. And then it's, I mean, Michigan's a great school mm-hmm. and um, it was in the residential college, which is this like small school inside the big school. Oh, so I, didn't, really I never, didn't realize that was there. And so you ended up getting a degree in service learning, which um, I've never heard of that yep. um, major. What is it? Yeah. So I mean, Michigan has a ability to basically especially for entrepreneurs, like create your own degree. Um, and actually you go back and find a lot of people who've been successful, like that's the degree they did. They didn't do one of the sort of off the shelf <laughs> degrees. Mm. Um, my focus was on uh, community service, volunteering and how to leverage that as a vehicle for learning. Wow. Um, well, you've really so, like put that to use in your career. Yeah, how, no, how absolutely. Did, I mean, all of your kind of startups that you've been the founder of have had that kind of weaved throughout and the theme. But before that, you were in product management. How did you land in those roles? Uh, product management was pretty random. So um, went to a quick trajectory to get there. So I went and worked in sh- inner city education in Chicago right out of college and just was like frustrated beyond belief that you know, these great nonprofits working in inner city had just had no ability to scale. Um, and they had really important work to do, but they just couldn't do it. And I sort of had the aha uh-huh, that like, I need to figure out how startups scale and understand how that works. So I had family um, in Silicon Valley and moved out there. I could sort of live with them until I found work. And uh, I was actually through Michigan alum, met a woman, it was fantastic. And we hit it off and um, they had just gotten venture funding. It was like five people. Um, and she said, if you can show me one HTML page you've written, and this is back in 96, right. um, I'll hire you as our webmaster, which is what they called a front end dev. Um, back in the day. And I was like, I happen to have literally one page of HTML that I did just to try to understand what HTML is. So I, I sent her that and got the job That's um, awesome. and was the, the front end dev webmaster for about six months. And then um, she said, you're really like more of a product manager personality wise. And so, um, you know, moved into that role and did that for about five, five years. And just mm-hmm. was that company a success? No, absolutely not. Um, so the <laughs> it grew to about that one grew to about four hundred people. Yeah, um, and it was one of the early pioneers around disrupting the housing and mortgage industry. Ah. Um, but ultimately did not make it. And then I went to another one that was sort of a precursor to blogging. Mm. Um, that raised a you know ton of money, grew like crazy, and then when the O one bubble burst. It was um, 
did not survive. So yeah, it's harder than it looks, right? Everyone thinks it's like, oh, I'll go be an entrepreneur. Like there's so many that fail. I don't even know what the statistics are, but they're insane. It's like 1% or I don't even know. It's like insane how many fail. Well, it's like, there's just, I think about all the time. It's like, there's so many different reasons why you can fail. Yeah. Um, And I think about it in terms of a startup. I also think about like all the like kids in high school that had so much promise and how few of them actually ever like realize that at all like and each one of them has like a different like whether it's an addiction or a bad relationship or a bad job or an illness like there's just so many things in life that can derail you yeah um, and the same thing with a business like bad hires bad strategy bad client bad economy no bad no no ability to fund yeah that's all yeah of it. i mean there's just so yeah. many things so it's just I, I i'm always... actually i'm actually surprised aaron that you have kind of gotten the bug for entrepreneurship, not based on your personality or kind of your mm. your um, drive, but based on the fact that you described your dad as a multi-time kind of failed entrepreneur in, of sorts, like he's obviously had some success, but that would scare any child, right? The, the up and down of that. And then to go to two startups that got such significant funding and grew and then didn't have an exit, it sounds like. I didn't see it as a failure. Like I, I look in retrospect at a failed entrepreneur like with my dad. I think growing up, um, I just loved the act of creation and that he was always like thinking of, I mean, his, like, a lot of the stuff he did was just like, like he was towards the later years, like he really got into like creating an eBay store and just things that like were super ill-fated um, that were just ridiculous. But it was the creative energy around it. Mm. Um, and I don't think I ever sort of saw them as failures per se. I just saw more right. as like, creative energy yeah Um, well I think that's helpful that money's never been your driver because otherwise you would see it as a failure versus all these things make you grow and learn and um and continue on to seek and to be curious absolutely I mean I think it did there was judgment on the money side just in the sense that you know the parents divorced and he wasn't able to like wasn't able to provide the support that he was supposed to, et cetera. So there was some judgment there, but it's separated a lot from the sort of the creative side. That is yeah. somehow like in my head separate. I mean, then the, the failure of the two startups to me was sort of inconsequential just because I feel like what they were trying to do is a worthy ambition. And I think to me, it matters more that you're doing something that matters more than totally. not. And you were young in your career. So it's not like yeah. I've got kids and I have like a mortgage. Oh, totally. so, yeah, that makes sense. And so how no, did you end up? A, a, go, sorry, go ahead. No, I think that was a big challenge I had coming out of Taproot Foundation um, was that when you have a very successful nonprofit, like you have no equity, there's no parachute, like you basically go from like salary to like to nothing um, the next day. And how do you sort of, how do you be a serial entrepreneur that way? It was sort of yeah. this big, because at that point when I started Taproot, I was single, low responsibilities. By the time yeah. I left, it was like kids, to your point, mortgage, et cetera. Yeah. Where, where um, was Taproot based? So I started Taproot in San Francisco, um, and then we moved to Brooklyn uh, after, I don't know, six or seven years. Um, and then, because at that point, we had a New York office anyway. Mm. So um, we wanted to raise our kids on the East Coast. So we decided to sort of pick up and move uh, yeah. to New York. Um, we felt like It's San so Francisco weird that we're, he- we're both here because we were literally like, you turn left and you end up in Brooklyn, and you turn right, you're like, we're now in Mercer Island. It's like, it could not be diff- more different. And we almost did the whole Brooklyn thing. And it's super cool. What a great way to raise the kids. Like, what, did you have the kids there? Yeah, yeah. The kids there were uh, sort of young for my, it was basically like um, preschool, like in early elementary school. Yeah. And I think it was fantastic for that. And there's a great, 321 is a great public school mm. in Park Slope. I think if we'd stayed through middle school and high school, it might not have as romantic a vision. Well, maybe it'd end up in private, super expensive and yeah. schlepping all over to get. Whereas private here is so friends. cheap. It's, 
Well, it's all relative. <laughs> I don't know about that. So you started Taproot in 2001, yeah. and, um, yeah. and that was something that you did kind of as an operator through 2014. Is that right? Yep, roughly, yep. Uh, and tell me the story there. Like, um, what, what was it? What is Taproot? Yeah, so Taproot um, is a nonprofit and started it with um, this idea because so, I had worked in nonprofits of realizing like a big part of why nonprofits don't scale isn't just cash. It's that they don't have access to the talent that you and I both know are necessary, the marketing, the tech, the HR, the ability to bring in expertise before you need it instead of like after you need it um, and realize that the nonprofits needed that on the other end business professionals weren't, they didn't have a good outlet for getting involved in the community. Um, There's traditional volunteering, but a lot of that just did never, it rang basically false. Um, they didn't feel like they were really making an impact um, and weren't motivated to go just do the traditional volunteering. And I realized there was sort of a chocolate and peanut butter moment of these two things coming together um, and realizing that lawyers were the only profession that had pro bono work as part of their core sort of ethic. Um, and great story on how that happened. Um, but the same wasn't true really for marketing, tech, HR, finance. And I was like, why not? And like, let's, let's make that happen. Um, so that was really sort of the impetus. And the core model was around um, really addressing the reliability of pro bono work. Because pro bono work traditionally does um, something that nonprofits generally don't want because it's not, it never gets done. It never gets completed. So it was like really, it was a fascinating organizational psychology and team development effort around how do we build teams of strangers from different companies to go do virtual pro bono engagements inside nonprofits over mm -hmm. the course of each project was about six months. So yeah, I was going to say, is there a commitment level because you have to have the continuity? Yeah. So it's, um, I mean, the whole model was designed, and this was sort of at the time was sacrilegious. Um, it was built on the manufacturing model. So what we did is we said, here are the 10 most common nonprofit needs. We're going to pre-scope them. We're going to develop the project plan. There are all the different documents that are used in that process. We're going to create job descriptions for each of the volunteers. And then we're going to screen them. And we actually, the majority of people who applied to volunteer, we declined because um, we didn't think they were qualified. And we had a philosophy that nonprofits don't deserve leftovers. They deserve like people who are like professionals to know how to do whatever it is that they're doing. So we had this sort of whole model and we would have hundreds of these projects going at a time and we'd be able to do that really cost effectively because we knew if it was week 13 where that project should be. Yeah. And if it oh, wasn't, we'd know, where to cool. you'd know where to intervene. And if it was on schedule, you'd be like, great, you're doing mm -hmm. a great job. And how um, did you find the professionals? So interesting. So we started at rate um, after 9-11. And mm -hmm. there was just this incredible demand. There were people, a lot of people out of work, but there's also just a lot of demand for relevance. Mm -hmm. And um, connected with Craig Newmark in San Francisco and created a deal with him where he basically gave us unlimited free inventory on their job board. Mm -hmm. So you'd be looking for jobs and we basically would just have like, hey, have you thought about doing pro bono work? Um, and then did the same deal with Monster and Hot Jobs and just they all gave us free inventory, um, LinkedIn. That's um, so very we were able cool. To tons of people that way. Um, so we built that out and um, took about two years of self-funding um, before we got any funding. Mm -hmm. um, and who ended up funding it? So the very first, there's two, the, the very first one was a fun story, which is that it was a local community foundation where it was a, a gentleman there. I met with him just to get, you know, exploring funding. And um, he's like, you're not ready for, you know, for uh, 
a grant from the foundation. And I was like, well, what would it take? And he just like listed 10 different things that we'd have to do. And um, I emailed him two weeks later and I'm like, they're all done. Like, where do I submit the grant? And he's like, I can't say no because you did everything <laughs> I told you to do. So that was a, it was a $10,000 grant. It was modest, but, um, and he actually ended up being the officiant at my wedding. Oh, and Aspen, wow. Like 10 years later. So it was just a great, he was a um, former Catholic priest who had been excommunicated for being gay. It was just oh this great, God. great sort of connecting the dots. Um, but the major funding actually came from uh, the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation, which is sort of the preeminent venture philanthropy organization in the country. And this wow. is the first year they just found it. They, they had funded two um, other social entrepreneurs and the first year, and I was the third. And uh, Bill Draper, who's really the, the godfather of venture capital, um, had started to apply what he'd done in venture capital to philanthropy. And he was just such a mentor and just so phenomenal. And they're, they do a $300,000 grant to hundred thousand a year. So it actually enables wow. you to like actually have enough money to pay yourself and to do it for real. Yeah. And how did you meet um, him? How did that whole thing come together? I met one of the other social entrepreneurs who'd been funded mm. um, and they connected, but the funny, so that was how I connected with him. Um, and then I told my grandmother, I was like, Oh, we just got funding from Draper Richards Kaplan foundation. He's like, is that Bill Draper? And like, she sent me a picture and there was a picture. Apparently his father um, was my grandfather's boss um, in the Marshall plan. Oh, that's crazy. So like, I could have actually connected through family, but I didn't even know the connection. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there was actually a picture in their living room of like his father. Um, so it was just sort of the small world. Yeah, that small it was nice world. to like have that privilege, but not have used it. So yeah, I no, of course. It. And so what was the business model? How did you make money? Yeah. So it was a, it, um, so the way it worked was that we'd go to foundations. Um, so if you're a, you know, Seattle foundation, if you're a corporate foundation and we'd say like, you've only got so much money to give. If you give money to us, um, we'll multiply it by 10 in services for your nonprofits you support. So if you've got your portfolio, um, you give us $100,000, we're going to create a million dollars in services for those same organizations. So we're going to help you multiply those dollars. So they sort of acted as a um, sort of wholesale buyer, if you will, for the nonprofits that they support. And um, at our peak, we had, I think, more funding from, we had funding from more foundations than any nonprofit in the country. Oh my gosh. Um, because we were agnostic. So we weren't like a health organization or an education organization. We weren't like geographically bound as much. Mm -hmm. um, so we could basically serve any portfolio that a um, foundation had. So we were able to like really um, make that happen. Um, so that was the core revenue model and sort of scaled that up across seven cities in the U.S. And then we started having companies. Because if you remember, I was saying the recruiting actually came through job boards. So it was yeah. a lot of random people, companies started saying like, hey, like we want to do a pro bono program and we don't know how. Like we have volunteering, but we don't know how to do pro bono. And McKinsey does, but if you're like a Time Warner, um, you don't have the infrastructure to do pro bono work, the mm -hmm. scoping, uh, the vetting, the project management. So we st stood up a consulting firm inside Taproot just to consult with companies to help them build their own programs. Um, and that became a, at this point, I think it's the largest revenue stream in the organization is actually uh, building capacity of companies to do pro bono work. Very um, cool. And so you said that you had access through LinkedIn and Monster and all these other um, job boards that were giving you space to promote the roles. But what was the ideal Taproot employee? Like what was, well, not, not employee, but the people that were doing the best the volunteers, the best volunteers, like who stood out? What was their profile? How did you screen them? Kind of all that. Yep. 
Well, it was the opposite. I mean, it's, it's intuitive when I tell you, but it was also the opposite of what we thought. Um, we thought it was going to be, you know, people who were retired, people who were, uh, maybe they were, had been a stay-at-home parent, um, had time. Um, what we found the best people were the busiest people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the people who were just already on this conveyor belt of work and just mm-hmm. adding something else was easy because they already were in that motion Yeah. versus people who were having to like switch gears to go into that mode. Totally. Um, so that was what we found was sort of um, the biggest piece. And a lot of it came to motivation and why they wanted to do it. Yeah. Um, and we found the best people did want to make a difference, but that wasn't enough to actually get them to finish a project. Mm. They had to have a personal motivation of something they personally needed to get out of it. Um, so it was often around relationships. They wanted to meet new people. Um, they wanted like a creative challenge. We heard a lot from people, one of my like favorite stories, I forget what company it was, but it was a brand identity designer from a huge company. And they're like, I can only design in green and yellow. Like those are our corporate colors for 10 years. Like I've never touched another color and I want to be able to use other colors. <laughs> And that's I was like, so, that's so that's, random. But it's, but, and I think it's a nice like parallel, right? Yeah. If you think about yeah. whatever the policies are in your company, like if that's the only, you want to be able to yeah, color outside the box yeah. and, and have some more freedom. So I did, when I was in New York, I did yeah. some work with Streetwise. I don't know if you know uh-huh. that, sure. but that, yeah, that felt, um, it w- that felt like great volunteer opportunities because it would just be like going in and speaking to, um, their population that was like kind of like the person that was trying to go corporate from like a McDonald's or Walgreens type of role, trying to transition to a corporate role. So it was like teaching them how to interview, what to wear, what questions to ask, how to prepare. So were there opportunities? It wasn't like a six month commitment. It was like, I'd go in when they needed me. Were those, are there those types of opportunities with Taproot? There are now, there weren't at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. What we found for like professional services type projects is that there's, so much time needed to get someone up to speed to the point where they're productive. Totally. Unless it's a relatively long project, you're just wasting time yeah. um, of the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure there was like enough substance there to make that work. Um, yeah. We had two ways that morphed over time. Um, one is what we called, um, it was a basically a marathon model where we'd have a company host like in a ballroom, 50 nonprofits and then 50 executives. And the nonprofits would bring, they're basically scoping challenges. Like, like I know speed I have dating. <laughs> It's speed dating, but it's actually was, um, but they each scored in the date. Like they <laughs> came in with a specific problem that they weren't saying, I need X. They were saying, I have this malady. Um, and then they'd be able to get to a CHRO and say, the CHRO could help them figure out what's actually going on to f- identify what the intervention is that's needed. Oh my God, that's so satisfying for the CHRO yeah. because she's like, or he is like, all yep. of this work and I get to give so much value in my knowledge. Ex- I'm a knowledge expert in, in this area in an hour. Yeah, totally. and, it feels, and it's got the feel good part too. Totally. And very often then they'd be like, oh, and by the way, I'll get my team on the side to like do that for you. Oh, that's so great. They'd often like end up doing that. It wasn't part of the program, but they yeah. would do that. Um, and we found companies needed that because they needed like a really low mm-hmm. entry point. And yeah. then uh, right before I left, we raised money to build sort of an online version of Taproot um, mm-hmm. called Taproot Plus, where you can you know, post for a need, a specific need, and it can be different sizes um, or volunteer in different sizes. So it's a much more flexible model. That's really um, cool. So that's, that's really cool. And so time. why did you leave? Um, it was a mix of different things. I think one is, as an entrepreneur, if you've been at a certain organization over a period of, a certain period of time, it's like you become that little, guy, little, little that itchy. Gal. Yeah. Well, it's actually different. So yes, itchy, but it's also like, 
at a certain point, you're not as employable or you mm. like, can't do something else because you're just, you're that person, right? Um, and I was like, is this my identity? Is this me? Or yeah. is this like a chapter? Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of was one piece. The itch. Um, and just, I think the big thing for me was if they hired someone else to replace me, would it be meaningfully different? Like, is this where I can make the greatest contribution? Or mm -hmm. if you just took like a CEO and put them into this role, you know, given what we already are doing, like, could they do a good enough job? Yeah. Right? And I realized like my marginal, like as the founder entrepreneur, like that marginal value wasn't as high. Um, and then the final thing is I was drawn to something, which was um, I realized that the reason people were doing pro bono work was largely because their work wasn't fulfilling. Mm. And that was at a time when the kids were young. And I was like, you know what? Like, we need to fix work. Like, fixing volunteering is lovely. But if we don't fix work, we've got a much bigger problem on our hands. And uh, I saw in what happened at Taproot, like, early indications of what it might take to actually fix work. So that was a big part of the sort of reason to go on to the next adventure. Yeah. And so when you left, I know that you wrote a book in 2014 yep. called The Purpose Economy. Yep. Um, was that kind of like, okay, now I've got some headspace and time to focus on this? Or were you also doing other things while writing the book? Um, so I wrote the book largely during my last six months at Tapper, where I'd already given notice and it was sort of a lighter load, if you will. Um, and it actually started off, there were two sort of initial motivations, honestly. One was I had set 10-year goals for myself, and one of my goals was that by 40, I would publish a book, um, and it was coming up on my 40th birthday, and I was like, shit, I got to start that. Um, and then I also, I started actually by wanting to um, really value the experience I had at Taproot. Um, so I went and interviewed about 20 different former partners, employees, board members who had been part of the journey at each of the stages, and just sort of talked about you know, what they were doing now, what their experience was. And Purpose Economy, like to a large degree, like came out of um, making this space and having those conversations with people who were part of the Taproot journey um, along the way. So it started off actually just interviews with them. Um, and that's sort of where the insights came. And then remembered that my uncle had coined the term information economy when he was an economist at Stanford and really sort of proven for the first time that we had moved from an industrial to an information economy and really sort of struck me as a framing that maybe we're moving into a, the next economic era post-information um, and that purpose would be the sort of, um, sort of organizing principle of that. And that really became the sort of the core pillar of the book is this idea that we're entering this next economy, which I think proved to be pretty accurate when you oh look at Oh my gosh, yeah, I'm listening happened. to you and I'm like, uh, ding, 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 like you were absolutely <laughs> accurate. And so who were you targeting to read the book? Or I mean, was it, was it intended to be something big and, and was it? Or is it, um, I guess? <laughs> um, I don't know that I did a great job of targeting. I think I was writing largely to like, um, to people who were like had a desire to build businesses and to build careers with more purpose mm -hmm. and needed a justification for doing that, like a rationale to make it feel like that's the right thing to do. And I heard a lot of that from people of like, this gave me the thing that gave me the confidence to tell my parents, I'm going to focus on this or to, as a CEO, sort of say that this is important. So mm -hmm. it was, part of it was just giving like a more rigorous uh, narrative. Yeah. But also say they that, say it's important to write, write a book in a kind of knowledge expert type of way. Like, that you could be, I mean, I know that you're um, an influencer on LinkedIn and some yep. of those things can be impacted through, you know, writing a book. 
Yeah, that wasn't really the motivation. I think it would be if I did another one. I think a lot of it was like, I just needed to get this out. And yeah. I was playing with ideas and I wanted to like process them. Yeah. Um, so like a lot of my book, like I hired a cartoonist. So a lot of it's in cartoon format. Oh, maybe I will uh, read it. <laughs> it's got, like, <laughs> I haven't read it yet, but I'm like, it's hard for me to concentrate on books. And like cartoons, I could probably concentrate on. Cartoons. Well, it was actually, I did. So I treated it like a product and I wrote a draft and then I sent it out to about 200 people as a beta and then got feedback on it, which caused me to completely rewrite it based on that feedback. Uh, but one of the pieces of feedback was like, dude, why are you writing a book no one reads? Mm. I was like, well, thanks for telling me that now. Yeah. Um, so that's when I introduced the comics. I'm like, I'm going to do a beginning of each chapter. We'll have a comic version if you don't want to read the actual chapter. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my shortcut around that. Yeah. And did it lead to further opportunities or open any doors? Oh my God. It was, I mean, it was a year of just world tour, which was just super fun traveling, you know, everywhere from got to like go do, uh, speech um, hosted by or uh, sponsored by the king of Saudi Arabia um, which was insane to you know going all over Europe to you know doing a bunch of work in Beijing uh, with the Chinese government around it that's um, incredible did you have a PR person that like helped arrange I all had that a PR person which helped me with the um, articles that I wrote so like getting placement in the times etc so with that the speaking was more through my network mm -hmm. um, and just sort of reaching out reaching out to folks. And then we had a, we brought in a set of interns for the summer who were just doing a ton of outreach. And one of the things we did is we named the top hundred influencers, the purpose economy in the U S Europe and Asia. Um, so that also created a network. Um, That's to be brilliant. Able to do it. Yeah. And the interns were great. Actually, um, AOC, uh, or the congressman from uh, Queens was actually an intern for us. Um, what? Way before then. She was like one of our first interns. Was she um, uh, kind of mover shakery back then? She was a bartender. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, she was a was pre-political. I guess was life. she a good employee or good oh, intern? Was, yeah, I mean, she's I mean, she's super. She's just crazy charismatic. Yeah. So I mean, it's probably her greatest contribution was just being in our product video, um, and being able to like just her voice is just so clear and strong. Yeah, um, I, no, I would fun. agree with that. And so, yeah. when did you start Imperative, and how did you come up with this idea? I love the company. Um, I spent some time on the website today, and I have a million questions. So there are different there are different sort of um, eras of, of Imperative, if you will. The first one was really around the book and doing that. So a lot of that was around like how do we bring the purpose economy to life. Um, so we did like a conference with mayors, we're talking about like what is a purpose capital going to be, and like consulting around that. I did a big partnership with West Elm to do purpose dinners in all their stores. Um, we were just sort of experimenting with different ideas around um, the book, and then uh, we launched the purpose profile, which was the first ever. Assessment. So you've probably done Strengths Finder, Myers Briggs, et cetera. So we built the first one that was to determine what your purpose is um, oh, in about super ten minutes. Cool. And we launched that as like first as like a free product, um, and then eventually turned it into a B two B product, um, selling it to companies to have their employees be able to, you know, identify their purpose and to begin to look at. Um, applying basically predictive analytics to purpose, which had never been done before. Mm -hmm. So like if I know your purpose from a psychological standpoint, I can predict where you should grow, what's going to be meaningful to you. So it can help guide people on a career from a purpose yeah. standpoint. It absolutely can go in that direction. But as a CEO, yep. I'm like, it could go, the vulnerability around it could be that they're like, I don't, I don't want to be in recruiting. Like I discovered that through this but that's good. I, then you weed we those never, people We out. honestly never had those stories. It was almost always people just saying, like, I didn't realize how I already get a lot of purpose in my work, and mm. I didn't appreciate it. Oh, good. Uh, the, the, my favorite one, though, because I'm secular, is, like, I had a, I was at Google giving a, a talk, and we had a, um, it was a reverend came up to me, 
Um, and she sort of said, like, I went into this work because I wanted to help people find purpose. And if I had known there was a secular way to do that, I would have done it this way instead, but it wasn't available to me mm, at the time. So that was a, uh, that to me was like a big win. Yeah. Um, just to sort of think about that. So that was sort of that chapter. Um, that ultimately was not a, it's not a great business. Yeah, I was going to say, I um, don't know what the business model would be, but so yeah, which, chapter, for, which chapter two? So that was the, the chapter two, and that was, it also didn't make a big impact. People would do it, but then like the, a lot of them, like they wouldn't actually make change based on it. So what we came to in this sort of chapter we're in now, which is really where we've taken off, is um, we're looking at like what actually causes someone to work with purpose and to bring it to life on a daily basis. And what we found was the people who did that were the ones who were regularly relying on their peers as coaches informally, um, and we're supporting each other on that journey. And we started doing more and more tests and research around that. Um, and we realized that this was not just an opportunity to help people work with purpose more, but that actually meaningful conversation has basically become extinct in most organizations. And that things like Facebook, et cetera, have like, um, they're called social media, but they actually make us very antisocial. Mm, and lonely, um, and, for sure. And lonely. And like, um, we just suddenly had that moment, similar to the taproot for chocolate and peanut butter moment of just realizing that um, if we could use video, but overlay it with specific prompts for people to ask each other the questions that we know are going to help yeah, them. Yeah, that was actually audience. one of my questions is like, yeah. how do you create this engagement or do you give like kind of talking points or things to create the yep. meaning? It's fully scripted. Um, Part of the value proposition is you can jump into it with no training um, and that no matter what your skill is, you're going to have at least a, at a minimum, like a good conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so it's video and we're, we're serving up questions to ask each other. Like, here's the question to ask and here's the follow-up question. Oh my God, ask. I'm dying to see the questions. Um, and, there, and then we, because the purpose profile is built into it, with some of the questions we'll say, like, if you're struggling with the question, like, here's some insights from your profile that might help you think about it, which wow. proved to be really valuable because it's helping people get unstuck there. Mm. Um, and so what's so, in people's profile? So the profile is looking at three different dimensions of purpose. Um, one is the elevation at which you want to make an impact. So some people get the most meaning from helping people at the individual level, sort of feeling like their work actually makes a difference in people's lives. Other people, it's at the organizational and team level. And then the third is at a societal level. Mm. So knowing where you are in that continuum has a lot of predictive um, values um, in terms of thinking about your career, thinking about how you show up, how you set goals, et cetera. So that's sort of one of the three. There's another one that's around basically your, your definition of fairness, which mm. ties very heavily to what your purpose is. And the final one's more traditional, which is around really like, how do you solve problems? And if you look at someone's purpose statement they might have built with a coach, it's usually a combination of those three elements um, that you're seeing. Um, that um, enable that. So um, we're able to use that to predict things like what kind of volunteering would you find most meaningful? Or, That's so cool. I love that. And so how do you ensure that the conversations are meaningful? Is there some sort of measurement or feedback, yep. you know, ability? So it has, there's a couple of things. So one is at the end of each conversation, we ask how helpful was the conversation? Mm -hmm. And we find, uh, I think it's like 17% say they had a breakthrough, 57% wow. said it was very helpful. And like basically statistically, no one says it wasn't helpful. Yeah. So that's yeah. like a first indicator. And then if you and I were doing peer coaching, at the end of it, a session, we would each pledge an action that we were going to take based on our conversation. Mm -hmm. And then when we got back together, we'd have to tell the other person, did you do it? So there's an accountability, peer the coaching accountability. aspect to it. And so when you say we got back together, so there's two meetings with one person or do you have several and then you get like reshuffled to meet with another person so you get a partner every quarter okay and you do five conversations with each partner 
So over the course of a year, you've basically built four new best friends. That's that work. super cool. And how long are the conversations? They're an hour. Yeah. So Each you're committing four hour. hours a quarter. Five hours a quarter. Or I yeah. guess you said five meetings. Yeah. Okay. And what's the business so model? How do you make money? So it's a SaaS technology. So companies are licensing this um, for their employees. Mm -hmm. um, and it's what's great is we've figured out basically how to remove the need in most instances for a coach, which is very expensive, and enabled peers to be able to do this. So we're able to do it for 10 cents on the dollar um, compared to coaching um, or better. So it's just a really cost-effective way for mm -hmm. a company to provide, to basically create a coaching culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so you just, you just charge per head, like a um, yep, subscription-based right. model? Yep. That's right. Okay. And so I'm assuming based on this, because you need to have a certain volume that you're targeting larger companies, because I've got 17 employees and I guess numbers wise, I don't even know if you could shuffle. I'm not good at math, but I mean, I am good, but I can't even do that in my head. You know, so is, there, to, I, is there a minimum number of employees, I guess is my question. We can edit that there's, out. <laughs> there's different ways. <laughs> there's different ways of answering the question. So um, from a business model standpoint, what we're finding is about a thousand employees is where um, it makes sense. And over 5,000 is really where it's ideal. Um, from like a basic model, I mean, you could in the course of a year, if you had, you know, four people, you'd have a different partner each quarter, right? Or oh, five okay. People. So math wise, it does work. Okay. I mean, you could have five, cool. with five people, you could do a year's worth yeah. just for us yeah. economically. It's not yeah. um, great. And also we wouldn't be able to do what we do. We have smart matching, so we wouldn't really have that much choice around who your partner yeah. would be, right? Oh, very cool. And so what was the fundraising process like? I'm assuming, did you bootstrap this or also funded this? We got funding. I mean, each of the stages are different funders of those stages. Yeah. Um, this stage, we've been funded by Voyager Capital here in Seattle. And then Court Lorenzini, who is also local, who is a founding CEO at DocuSign, who's on mm -hmm. our board. So they've yeah. provided the investment. And we're about to go out and raise the, the next round. That's super exciting. That's awesome. And so are you... Um, right now national or are you also targeting kind of a global client It's base? national in the sense that we're not like, we haven't made the platform like um, internationalized or localized. Mm. Um, we will eventually, but so much of this is language based that so we really want to get that right. Yeah, so we sure. are serving, they're US based companies, but we are serving like if they have satellite offices around the world and those folks are, you know, can at least do business in English. Yeah, uh, we've been sure. doing that. And it's been some great stories like we have working with Steelcase and, um, we interviewed one of the sets of people who did it. And like one of them was based in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Steelcase is. And another one was like a manager in a manufacturing plant in Mexico. And they were both part of this family, but they had such different experiences. And to have them be able to spend these five hours together um, yeah. was just so Your, your business model is exactly um, kind of my vibe. When I was in New York working for this large company, there was a hundred employees and there was cross-pollinization as far as like, you know, um, water cooler talk and you know outings but there wasn't a whole bunch of referrals going on or just like really deeply knowing one another across the different yep. practice areas and I, I found that a there was a missed opportunity for revenue generation but also just the stickiness as far as building a culture that felt like more of a family or like you know you're, totally. you're on the winning team and we're betting on this yep. horse together um, and so I would do these you know I don't remember they were like monthly lunches and I'm like listen to the CEO who wasn't as as geared towards this way of thinking I was like sure. listen let's just do some math around this it's not very expensive to have a lunch right yep. and um and it did have incredible outcomes we didn't measure it formally but there was just more vibe going on between people and and referrals so obviously revenue generation I just so heavily believe in what you're building um 
it's it's amazing. And so, who who's a good um, imperative employee? Like, what's your recruiting <laughs> strategy, Ben? Um, I mean, we're still you know small and scaling up. Mm-hmm. Um, How many really employees put, do you have right now? We are ten. Ten. Well, still, but there's there's I'm sure a common thread. As you mentioned, you're um, curious. What were your three words? Yep. Curious. Um, I think you said like driven or I can't remember. Purpose driven and uh, bold, I think. And bold. So somebody has to have a certain DNA to work on your team and also have a passion for believing in purpose and culture and connectedness. Um, How do you measure those things when you're recruiting? So we we did pretty early on as we identified four values um, and talked about like how to measure those um, when we're interviewing folks. So you just named one of them, which is belief. Um, we really want people who, um, they don't just think, oh, I want to work at a startup or I want to work at a social impact business, but they actually care about human connection. They care about work and they've lived that and done things in their workplace like you just described. I mean, that would have been a perfect answer if I were interviewing you around like belief. It's not yeah. that it's intellectual. Well, I, got it's a, like I got a backup plan. I'll come work with you. Sweet. <laughs> after, after our lunch, you'll want to hire me there even you go. more. Done. Um, <laughs> And then, so it's belief, curiosity is another one. So curiosity is a mixture of things. Part of it's around previous, but a lot of it's like if they didn't do any research or homework coming into the organization or into the interview, if they don't have questions, Mm. um, and I find about 80% of people don't. Well, not Uh, if they come through fuel because we insist on it. Of course. How do you think you're going to get hired if you don't even have any indication that you're, you know, personally curious about the business or the founder? Yeah. No, it's like at a minimum, just like with anybody, like if you don't, it's a form of flattery if you don't show interest. Um, And I'm just off the charts on curiosity. Um, I just did a cognitive exam, a psychology exam, and she was like, been doing it for 40 years. And like, I was the most curious um, she'd come across in that. Like I'm over the, over the top. So if someone doesn't have any of that, like I just am pretty judgmental. Um, Resourcefulness. So people who are able to figure out how to make something happen, not yeah, well, especially sense. in a startup, yeah. Totally. Um, and the final one is just excellence, which I think goes back to what I shared about my grandfather and the idea of yeah. like world-class. Um, so I find with each of those, you can create criteria for interviewing. You folks. have to tell me because excellence is one of ours. Yep. And ironically, um, as somebody who's been in recruiting for 26 years, I haven't quite figured out that behavioral hmm. um, questions as far as how to measure against um, aspirational values as far as fit. Um, I mean, there's gut things like, you know, if something like, um, you know, don't be an asshole was part of my values, which it is of many companies. And they were kind of like rude to the receptionist or disrespectful to, if you know, take them out to lunch and they're rude to the waitress. Sure. Um, You know, you can learn a lot about people, but actually just kind of drilling somebody with questions um, is hard to come up with those. Yeah. How do you measure excellence? I'm trying to think what are the questions. So one of the I mean, it depends on the age and like stage of someone's career. Um, I typically want to talk to them about like when tell me about like when you feel like you're done with a project. Like what does completion look like? And mm. how do you know like that you're actually there? Yeah, um, maybe you can talk to our kids. I just like scream, <laughs> screamed at one of them because I felt and he he was he felt confident, but I was like, I feel like you're doing a half-assed job and like yep. that whole like anything you do is a reflection of you. Well, being a parent of excellence is different than uh, screening for mm-hmm. it. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not claiming teenager. that I'm any good at it. Yeah. At it. So I think that's a good measure. Um, I look a lot at excellence to me is about impact because sometimes the excellent thing to do is the minimal thing to do to get to the outcome. Um, so I, I look at that. The other thing I've done for a lot of jobs is have them go to our website and come back with a critique of it. 
Um, and I find people who have a strong excellence, like rip it to shreds. Mm, um, I'm going to remember that. That's super good. Um, especially when it's like a, like whenever I've hired an assistant or marketing, like yeah. I want someone who's going to be super critical. Yeah. Do you want me to go to the website and give Please, you yeah, just tear it apart. Um, it's, it's, that also creates free consulting when you get people to do that. Yeah, probably we'll have like, in a good way, the, the critical Jewish parents. And yep. so I can tend to look at things through a critical eye, which is actually a strength and a weakness. So I get that. Well, it's also um, a place of bias. <laughs> that's one of the things I worry yeah. about. Like, are the values very, because they're tied to me and like, are uh, they? I think that's okay. I mean, yep. you're building a company, you're, yep. you need people to get on and follow you. And if they yep. are not aligned, then that's a really quick way of, of weeding out uh, yep. anybody who's going to probably weed themselves out anyway. Yep. Curio there is a Jewish version of curiosity. Yeah. Um, and I'm well, drawn the, neuro to, the I'm neuroses, drawn to that. the neuroses around, and it's also part of the religion to question everything. Right. Yeah. No, Which I get that. But I think maddening. that that's actually, I'm sure. I have a little bit of that, and a little bit of. Um, I have a, a ton of faith in humanity. Yeah. And I generally assume all people are good, and yep. I also think it's a New Yorker versus a Seattle person who's. Um, I'm assertive when I want something to get done, and and kind of. I push through things really quickly. I'm really quick to execute, but I don't have that. Um, let me look at all the angles of what could go wrong here necessarily. And I think that's actually a good trait. Um, so where do you see this company going? Like what are your goals and when will you kind of measure? I think you're very successful, but is there a, like once I get here, I'll feel successful. I think there's a couple different measures of that. Um, I think there's, I'd like to be at the point where we have a million conversations every day happening on the platform because at that point wow. at that point you would have like a critical mass i believe to change sort of change society when you started seeing that kind of volume happening um i don't think it makes the bigger broader change unless you start getting to those kind of numbers so that's one piece that i think of as success um the second one just from a business standpoint is you know right now we're starting to disrupt coaching as an industry um the next industry i really want to disrupt is management consulting uh, management consulting tends to end with PowerPoints and then nothing happens. And I believe peer coaching as a mechanism is a way in which you can basically drive change in an organization. So a CEO can like put questions out and like the next day have like all 100,000 employees like having psychologically designed conversations to process that change. Um, so I think we're in a position better than anyone to actually um, complete that last mile of management consulting and just completely mm. disrupt that so that people can do change. And then mm. I have all kinds of fantasies about, you know, getting Republicans and Democrats to come together with peer coaching. I have, um, would love to do it more on campuses. Um, yeah. You're like, go something. big or go home. I love it. Well, and how, how about, you know, I know that there's um, around those company sizes, oftentimes employee engagement surveys. And yep. I don't know what the numbers are as far as measuring success of how many people actually participate, but how do you get the people to actually do it? If they're like, eh, this, this is like, I'd rather be with my kid or I'd rather generate revenue or I'd rather, you know, work on the product. Yeah, I don't, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, one is we're just fortunate that we're doing this right now in the middle of a pandemic. So yeah, people I was going to say the pandemic must be like, oh my gosh, I need connection more yeah, than ever. So it's not that hard to convince people to like, hey, do you want to like meaningfully connect with someone? People are like, yes, yeah. please. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, we have a whole internal marketing to like get people to adopt. And then once people start their first conversation, it's not like a class where you can just be like, or, you know, not go and like not a big deal like, there's another person on the other side so you're going to let them down as well so there's a lot of social accountability mm. to actually do it yeah um, i like that and people generally say it's like the highlight of their week that's uh, awesome so well I, I wish our, i'm going to look into it because I, I wonder if our size business i love this kind of stuff 
I love it. So fun. You're, you're probably super busy. So my, my question is now like for you personally, like how do you find time with two kids and a wife who's working a ton, I'm sure. Um, is she still at Amazon? She is. Yeah. Wow. She's bold. Um, how do you find time for yourself? And when you do, what do you like to do to unwind? Um, so, I mean, I, my grandfather, one of his sayings was like, always keep exhilaration in front of exhaustion. And I think that's sort of the way, for better or worse, I live most of my life. So I'm pretty much like on or asleep. Um, I, sent, I sent that um, quote because yep. I read it um, to one of my friends who I was just talking to. And I was saying, like, I feel like you're you know, self-sabotaging yourself. Um, and I was like, you know, you're one of the smartest people, like, get, get psyched or kind of go home. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I, I mean, I know psychologically there's a lot of downsides to that mindset and what have you, but it's just the way I'm wired. So um, what do I enjoy doing? I'm a big walker. I try to oh. do t- probably 20,000 steps a day. I do a lot of calls on walks. I, I do a don't lot even of- know how you do that. I can't get 10,000. So I've you done, just walk in the rain with like a hoodie? I mean, I've done 10,000 a day just pacing on conference calls in my office. Um, I just am you got the sh- you got in the motion. Skokies. Yeah. Um, but no, I just walk around the neighborhood on calls a lot. Um, mm. uh, I try to not do Zooms. I try to do calls so I have that flexibility. Um, yeah. I wish I could have done this over walk, but we can't. And, um, sadly. <laughs> We've been like puffing and puffing and bad. bad <laughs> Going up the hill. I would have been at least. Yeah. That's awesome. So you walk and then are you talking like business talks or like catching up with friends from of everything. all of your... All of your sorted uh, schools over random hearse. Um, it's yeah, random hearse on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, it's a mix of work, podcasts, family, friends, um, yeah, whatever it is. Um, so I just love doing, love walking, and then I'm big yeah. on design and building a new home office right now. Like I love. Um, I love interior design and architecture. Like, are you actually doing no. the like hammering? No, 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 I was no, gonna no, say, no. yeah. Exactly. Um, so, uh, what podcast do you listen to? Um, I it's pretty much the cliche. Like, I love the Daily um, New York Times podcast. Although yeah. since the election, I haven't listened to it because I'm just kind of done with news for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I love listening to This American Life. And that's mm. just it's the classics. I'm not like. Yeah. Um, have you listened to Dax Shepard? I have not. I've heard, I think it's, one pre- it's, it's actually it's actually pretty good. And then um, how I built this is like the inspiration for why I wanted to do this because I was like that guy, he's good, but I'm like I feel like he's like so Aaron. So you're from Seattle, right? You know, and it's like, did you do any research? But somehow he can like bumble through it and make it sound so organic, like you're just meeting somebody for the first That's time. Cool. He obviously did his research, but um, and then he's just got such ballers on there. Um, so that's cool. Yeah, that's that's a good one. No, it's definitely an art form, and it's amazing. Yeah. You sort of think about yeah. what is involved in that. You know, so I haven't yeah. I haven't done as many of them. Like those, that usually gives me that. And I listen to Acquired. Um, yeah, Ben's. Ben's. Ben was on the podcast. Yeah, he's great, and I I've really yeah. enjoyed a lot of those. I generally don't yeah. listen to a lot of like industry stuff. It tends to be things yeah. that are well. He makes it interesting, version. so it's not so dry. Well, they just love you. what they're doing. Like it's just yeah, they could be talking tell. about milking a cow, and you'd be listening to it because it is so enthusiastic. I know. So, I know. And David's great too. Yeah. Um, he left Seattle, but he's a great guy. Um, and so, what do you do to like set yourself up for a productive week? Are you good like that? Like the people, I feel like everyone right now and it's becoming like almost like throw up where people are like, I get up and I drink my lemon water and then I do yoga and meditate. I'm like, at least for women, there's a, so many things coming at me that are kind of that message. So I, um, mine is definitely not that. Um, and I feel bad about it. I, my typical mornings, I get up at five, get some coffee and like watch an hour or two of bad TV. 
Uh, love it. Man, I love then, you. I did that. I did that this morning. Yeah. And then I sort of get on my first call at like seven. And yeah. Just start work. So. And you don't really need to find time to work out because you're walking like a madman. Yeah. So try to do that. Um, that saves some, that saves some yeah. time, I guess. That's awesome. That's awesome. So. And and so what would you ultimately say is your fuel? What fuels you? Uh, I think it's the question, what if? I'm just constantly like, what if we did this? What if you could do that? What if you combine these two things? Like I'm just the curiosity of the question, what if, is the thing that on a daily basis just like um, drives me and makes other people crazy because I'm always considering like all the different combinations yeah. um, of things. So I just, yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sure that you're going to go on to do incredible things with the company and I'm super glad to have you on the podcast. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to lunch. I'm looking forward to lunch. We have to uh, figure out what we're going to eat. That should be easy. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.